Harris and I were debating on who was going to preach a sermon this morning. I offered him my notes, and he, he wasn't scared to get up here. He just he wasn't exactly sure, you know, the color coding and all that stuff. So <clears throat> maybe next week. How about that, all right? We'll get you up here and let you go after it. How was, uh, how was the not worrying this week? If you were here last week, of course, that was a sermon. Don't worry. Trust God instead. Leave it in His hands. I told you, told you, you can't say I didn't tell you. I told you you'd be presented with a variety of opportunities to worry. <clears throat> and some of you came this morning, you're already worried. Something happened. It was raining. You're worried. Worried about your hair. Worried about getting wet. Worried about, you know, other people driving on the road when it's raining and whatever. You know, you have a variety of opportunities. Some of you, by Monday morning, you forgot the sermon. You just worry overwhelmed you. I get it. I mean, I listen, I understand. I, I was presented with a variety of opportunities to worry this week. And so I was reminded of the words that I had said on Sunday morning to you all. And so don't, don't worry. Now it's easier said than done, but when we put it in the, the terms of you can either worry or you can trust God, but you can't do both at the same time, then we, we understand, okay, I've got a choice to make. And so I, I wonder and I pray that you, that you had a, a less worried week because you chose in those worries to leave it in his hands, to trust the Lord. And I really think that's the only way to do it. This morning, just so you know, we've got another thing from the Sermon on the Mount that you'll be presented with uh, another variety of opportunities this week to get into the, uh, I guess, the the other side, the wrong side of what Jesus is talking about. Uh, some people look at the Sermon on the Mount and and some people who who want to kind of like Jesus, if you know what I mean. They want to they want to see him as a good teacher. Really nothing more. They, they look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say, oh, what wonderful, ethical, helpful teaching for our world today. You know, if people would just love their enemies and just choose to get along and, and go the extra mile and so on and so forth. Oh, what great teaching. What wonderful help. And they look at it as sort of a nice little sermon just that will help you in your life. Uh, but the truth is, Jesus talks a whole lot more than just about being nice, if you will, to people. If you haven't noticed, if you've been with us in our series called Thy Kingdom Come, which is really centered on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He's not just sort of dabbling on stepping on our toes. He jumps in with both feet and just starts stomping from the very beginning, stomping on our toes. He's getting into our business. He's rearranging our lives and our attitudes. But that's really what the kingdom of God is all about. Jesus sets it up in Matthew chapter 4. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's calling people into this kingdom to experience and to receive the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, if you remember from way back, is the rule of God in our lives. It's God's direction. It's God's rule. It's his taking over every part of our lives. And so that's what Jesus calls us into. And then he begins in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 to lay out what that looks like. And so he's covered all kinds of different things But ultimately, he's telling us, if you are citizens of this kingdom that I'm calling you into, then your life and your attitude and everything about you will look different, far different, radically different from that of those who are not in the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God, the rule of God should and can and must change everything about us. 
And that's really what Jesus is telling us. So when he says, go the extra mile, when he says, love your enemies, when he says, don't worry, he's saying, this is what kingdom life is all about. These are the things that are possible. You are free not to worry because you're in the kingdom of God. You are free to love your enemies because you're in the kingdom of God. You are free to not lust and to not murder with your words and your attitude and so on because you are a member of the kingdom of God. You're free not to do those things. We're going to get more of the same from him today. And I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we're going to look through the first 12 verses today, and then we'll wrap up this series next week. So, you know, we'll look at the remainder of chapter 7 next week in a, in a, a sermon that I'm just simply calling Practice What You Preach. And so Jesus comes down to it and says, if you have heard all of these things and you don't put them into practice, then ultimately you're like a foolish builder whose house has no foundation, and when life happens, things will be swept away. And so we're going to learn next week about how to do that. How do we practice what we preach? This week, uh, we're going to talk about something a little bit different and something that, as I said, you'll have opportunity for uh, this week. Uh, Jesus has already talked about our attitudes, our actions toward people in our lives. And then in chapter 7, he gets very clear. Very clearly, he tells us about the role that we can play, the one that we're not supposed to play, the role we can play in the lives of others. And then he gives us an idea of another role that we can play. Uh, look at verse 1 here. He says, do not judge. Now, last week he started off with, do not worry. Now, I don't know about you, but those two things are constant temptations for me. Constant. They never end. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm tempted to worry and I'm tempted to judge over and over and over and over and over again. All day, all week, every month of the year, every year of my life has been the same. I am tempted to worry and tempted to judge. And Jesus very clearly says what? Do not worry and do not judge. Good grief. The two things that I'm tempted to do most, Jesus says, don't do those things. And he puts it in no uncertain terms. It's not, hey, look, if your week's going okay and you don't have a lot to worry about, then don't worry. Because, hey, your week's going okay. No, he just says, don't worry. Hey, if people do what you want them to do and everybody's fine and so on, then don't judge. But that's not the way it goes, is it? Jesus just says, don't judge. Now, here's what he's not saying, just so you know. He is not saying do not judge in the sense that our society now likes to say do not judge. You know, you know how, don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? We, 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 what's crazy is that we, we have this mentality in our society that says that you are judging somebody if you say that they're wrong. So you can't say that anybody's wrong. But those people that would tell you that you are wrong for saying somebody is wrong, are they not making a judgment on you? Do you see how, I mean, we're, we're crazy. We understand that. We are crazy as a people. We, are, we have lost our collective minds. We do not know what we're saying. We are circular and we're stupid. There's my judgment on society. How about that? All right, see, I just did it. So, so you see what I'm saying? We, we say that, no, don't judge me. You can't say that somebody's wrong. But you just told me I was wrong for saying somebody's wrong. We, we, that's not what Jesus is saying, that we should just sort of not pay attention and just anything goes. That's not what he taught. That's not what he did. Jesus, of course, made judgments. Jesus had discernment. And he called us and told us that we are to also have discernment. In fact, 
If you look real quick in verse 6, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. He says, Do not give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Now, that's just a little interjection there to kind of balance out to say, look, Jesus is not saying just be blind and just whatever goes. It doesn't make any difference. There's always a right and there's always a wrong. And we always have to be discerning to understand what that is according to Scripture. And he's saying here, when you come across people who have vehemently and violently denied and dismissed the gospel, then back away from those folks. That's what he's saying. It's not a call never to evangelize. Certainly that's not the case. But what he is saying is you, you have the opportunity there maybe to back off, come out at a different angle, or just leave them alone. Maybe they have, in a sense, made their bed and you let them lie in it. Jesus is not saying don't make any judgments. The truth is, by nature, by the fact that we have been created in the image of God, we have judgment skills, we have discerning skills, and we have the capacity for making judgments. So he's not saying don't make any judgments at all, as if I can't discern, is this right, is that wrong, is this person doing something according to Scripture or not. He's not saying bury your head in the sand and don't make any judgments at all. So don't believe that. Don't buy that stuff. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not, well, hey, just just love everybody and don't worry about anything. No, 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 no. Jesus loved everybody and he also told them the truth. You understand what I'm saying? So he spoke the truth in love and commanded us to do the same. So he's not saying don't make any judgments at all. That's really impossible as we know. We can't help but do it. And it goes against what the Bible says. Now, Jesus, of course, has taught, like I said in chapter 7, verse 6, that we are to be discerning and so on. So what he's not saying is don't make any judgments. This is... This is really more about our attitudes and our actions when we are making judgments, when we are being discerning, when we do notice that something is wrong or someone has gotten out of what the scripture says or they're going down a bad path. So this isn't about avoiding making judgments. It's about avoiding judgmentalism. And there's a difference. It's about being harsh and critical toward other people. You're going to have opportunity this week to be harsh and critical, aren't you? In in a variety of roles that you play, at work, at home, at school, on a team, whatever. You know, one of the things that that I go back to, and and, and this this sermon convicts me and reminds me of it, is I I play a variety of roles in the lives of my children, and in two kids in particular, I play the variety the role of dad and coach. And so for Hank and for Duke. I play both dad and coach. And one of the commitments that I've made to Hank, and he knows this, is that I will always be what? You remember? I will always be honest, but I'll try never to be critical. Do you realize how hard that is? I mean, honestly. yeah. I mean, he and I are very passionate about baseball. And I am very passionate about him doing the right things in the game, if you understand what I mean. And so every once in a while, I, I tend to be a little more critically honest, if you get what I'm saying. This is hard. It, it's, it's something as simple as coaching baseball that you can cross the line, and now we're critical instead of just being honest and helpful. There is the need to help people see discernment and judgment and right from wrong, but Jesus is saying, don't be critical, don't be harsh, don't be judgmental in those things. And we know the difference, don't we? We know. We're not dumb. And our world may not understand it, but we, we, we know they've lost their way. We understand the scripture. We know Jesus Christ. We understand the difference. And the truth is we answer to God on this one. And yet it's something that we routinely encounter. I mean, you know how it works, right? 
Uh, we, we so easily pick out what's wrong with the other person. I see Hank doing something on the field, and man, it jumps out at me, doesn't it? Man, it does. And, and life's like that. We just we see things people are doing wrong, or what we think is wrong, and and everything and everyone around us, we so easily pick it out. And maybe that's even your job. Maybe you're in quality control. Maybe you're an OSHA person, and your job is to pick out everything that's wrong. Isn't that fun to try not to be harsh and critical when it's your job? It comes very naturally to us, doesn't it? And there's so much that hinges on how we handle this. When Jesus says, do not judge, he knows how much is, is riding on it. Relationships are riding on it, aren't they? Over time, do you know how relationships can go away and be broken and so on when one person is just critical and harsh and judgmental all the time? Uh, children and young people are drastically affected by it. When, they're, when, they're come, when they come to believe that they can't do anything right and they're always criticized no matter what they do, they're drastically affected, aren't they? Certainly our witness is either helped or it's harmed by how we respond to the sin that we see in other people and in our world. Not only does a lot hinge on it, but so much is revealed by it. What's going on in our hearts is revealed in what we say and how we say it toward other people. What we feel about other people truly is revealed in our approach to them when we disagree in some way. And what we feel about ourselves, really, our need to justify ourselves and so on is revealed. And then also it's our depth of understanding of God's grace and his mercy and his love is revealed in how we do this when it comes to, to making judgments. And I really think that's why Jesus included it in the Sermon on the Mount. There's so much that hinges on it, so much that rides on it, so much is revealed by it. He's been showing all along what his kingdom people are to be like and how they're to treat other people, both inside and outside the kingdom of God. And then he gets real specific about it. Do not judge. Now I want to read verses 1 through 12. We're going to come back and kind of pick this apart and show you some things about this and hopefully leave here today with a little different outlook on these things. Here's what he says. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. Now, when I read this, I see two roles that we can play in the lives of people. 
One is very obvious. The other, Jesus alludes to it. Two roles. Now, they're completely different, and they are mutually exclusive, meaning we can't play both roles at the same time. Can't do it. It's just like last week. You can either worry or you can trust God. This week, you can play one role or you can play the other in the lives of everybody. And and I I see how I play these roles in the lives of of people around me, and I see how people play these roles uh, for me. Uh, One role, as I said, is obvious, and that is the role of judge. That's the, that's the, Jesus says, do not judge. So if you're judging and so on that you're playing the role of judge. Now this for me just so happens to be the greatest fear and the greatest temptation. I don't want to be judged and I, I am so tempted to judge everybody else. I don't like criticism. I'm not sure of anybody who really does like criticism. I don't want to be judged. I don't want you to think badly and poorly of me. I don't want anybody to think the wrong things about my motives and what I'm doing and what I hope and so on. Man, I don't want to be judged. It's a great fear, isn't it? It's also a great temptation. It's interesting how that works. The truth is we so easily play the role of judge and also of jury and executioner. And we're going to find them guilty, we're going to sentence them, and we'll carry out the sentence. That's the way that we easily operate in the lives of other people. The, the prohibition is against placing ourselves in that role. Do not judge. Don't place yourself in the role of judge. That only belongs to God. That's what Jesus is alluding to. And, of course, it's prohibited for a variety of reasons, not the least of which that we aren't God. And so we, we are not qualified and Unfortunately, all we'll do is largely be harsh and condemning if we are judge, jury, and executioner. Now, this role is based on three main things that I see in here. First is impulse. Jesus just starts with it. Do not judge. Why? Because we so easily judge. We're impulsive to do it. It just comes naturally to us. We're quick to form an opinion. We're quick to give an opinion. You know, people like that don't elbow anybody. Don't elbow. They're not here this morning. They stayed home because of the rain, right? They, that's our opinion of them, right? So we just formed an opinion. Anyway, we're so quick to form and to speak an opinion. And we're quick to try to correct everybody else, or at least in our minds. You deal with this at work, don't you? If you've got a job that you go to every single day, nobody does it quite like they should, right? Especially not those above you. Not the, no, not at all. Not those people. They are the, 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 the biggest idiots in the whole place, right? At least that's what everybody under them thinks. Aren't we quick to form judgments? And you know what? The, if you're in leadership, if you're in management, you know what? Everybody else is lazy. If they just do what you told them to do, then they wouldn't have those problems. They're lazy. They don't know. Interesting how it happens. And we so easily do this. And you, you, you don't have to look very far to see how our society really invites it. If you're on social media at all, uh, maybe you're on Facebook. Do you know what, what the little thing there uh, for your status always says if, before you type anything? Do you know what it says? What's on your mind? Hmm. Ah, okay. What's on my mind? Well, i got a few things on my mind. A few people on my mind. I'm not going to mention them by name, of course, on Facebook, but I'll just sort of throw something out there, and then people will ask me, who are you talking about? Oh, well, you know, I shouldn't say. You know, i got a lot of things on my mind. i got a lot of opinions, a lot of things. I, I, do you see how our world invites us to be judgmental? In a society that claims we are a judgment-free zone, we are the most judgmental society maybe the world has ever known. And we love to give judgments. We say, what's on your mind? And they give little buttons down there. You can like something. 
You can dislike something. You can love it if you want to. You can put an angry face and so on and so forth. All kinds of little things you can do on social media to express your opinion and to give it and to judge and to impulsively do that and to say things without any recourse whatsoever and just broadcast it out into the web wherever it goes with no recourse. So much time, it seems, on social media is spent trying to prove or disprove someone or trying to convince someone of their wrongness and our rightness. Isn't that what, what, I mean, have you seen that? We go back and forth. Twitter's great because they give you 140 characters. You've got to express your opinion real quick, which means you use all caps or something if you want to yell at somebody and whatever. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to me. So much of what we do is trying to prove someone else's wrongness and our rightness. And I wonder what Jesus just says about the whole thing. Because the truth is, when we're judging, our impulse causes us to make sweeping generalizations about people based upon where they're from. You know what shocks me more than anything is that you all hired me about nine years ago. Do you know why it shocks me? Because I ain't from here. In fact, I am from... I am from the Golden Triangle in Kentucky, Louisville, Louisville, Lexington, North Kentucky. Isn't that where all, I mean, that's where all the money goes. That's where, I mean, that's, y'all know what I'm talking about. You know how you feel about those people up there, don't you? You go up there and it just drives you nuts. These people, I tell you, I got to go to Louisville. And so many of you are Kentucky fans, God bless you. And, and I mean, you just, you know, and you're, you're St. Louis Cardinal fan. We were talking about that earlier, right? I mean, all the guys are up here. These are Cincinnati Reds, Louisville Cardinal fans in training right here. And so you didn't know that. But anyway, you know how you feel about those people. And guess what? You hired one of them. You hired one of them. And here I am. And, and you know, I was joking with somebody the other day. I said, well, you don't really know which part of Louisville I'm from. You know, it's, it's, it's from a part that's a little more like this than the other parts. But isn't it interesting how we make sweeping generalizations about people from anything from where they're from to what they look like to the color of their skin to their choice of political party, all those things. Just sweeping. Well, because they're associated with this, because he's from Louisville, he must be boom, boom, boom. Because they they showed up wearing this and whatever, they they must be these things. Isn't it interesting how impulsively we do that and we make judgments and sweeping generalizations? In our impulse, we write people off for one mistake or for a sin or for a bad first impression. You ever done that? There are a couple people here, by the way, in this room, whose first impression to me wasn't great. And I've come to realize I was wrong. They're wonderful people. At first, I thought, I don't know about them. Y'all are all going to wonder now because you're in this room, I promise you. <clears throat> you're, in, you're here. Who's he talking about? And you're going to ask me on the way out the door, and guess what? I'm just going to smile and shake your hand. <laughs> That's the way it's going to be. Because guess what? I was wrong. My first impulse was wrong. I misjudged. You know why? Because it was too impulsive. Our impulse makes us think that we're better. It makes us happy when somebody we don't like has something bad happen to them. They finally get what's coming to them. Our impulse makes snap judgments and snap comments. Impulse isn't good when it comes to being discerning. It puts us in the role of judge. The second thing that this is based on is pride. Jesus says here, don't judge so that you won't be judged. And then he says in verse 3, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log 
in your own eye. Do you get the visualization here? Literally, like I've got a log sticking out of my face and I'm coming over to Mark and saying, I think there's something in your eye, brother. And he's doing what he's doing now. He's laughing at me. And that's what y'all are doing. It doesn't make any sense, does it? But I am so proud that I ignore, can't see, don't want to deal with whatever, this giant telephone pole sticking out of my face. And I'm going to come up to somebody and say, hey, uh, you know, I've got a little something right there. Isn't that what we do? You see how being judgmental is based upon pride. I need to be, I need to feel or to be seen as having nothing wrong with me. So I'll point out something that's wrong with somebody else. And so I do my best to do all that. A person can never measure up, whether it's an individual or group of people or some, some whatever. They can't ever do enough. They can't get it quite right. They're the, the target of my judgment. Not what they're doing, but them. You see the difference? I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to help them anymore. I'm just trying to criticize, make myself feel a little better. Maybe they've got something, some possession or status or whatever that I want. And so, so as a result, if I can't have it, then I'll try to make them look bad. Maybe they'll lose what they have, and so they won't have it either. It's a zero-sum game to me. It's not about truth, and it's not about principle and, and, and standing on righteousness anymore. It's about making someone else look bad and my need to be seen in a certain way. And so I set up my own standards. I, I assume that I'm qualified to judge people. And that speck in their eye or in their life becomes an obsession for me. A huge deal. And I've got to do something about it. And so I set myself up as an authority. Someone who sees everything and everyone else so clearly. And someone to whom everybody else should answer and be afraid of my judgments. I'm the expert. On what? You say, well, everything. Doesn't matter. I know. Just ask me. And so I'm not here to help. I'm just here to be heard and here to be right. And I care more about being right than I care about that person. And that's my pride. And this is a problem for us inside and outside the church. Jesus here, by the way, is speaking to those who are following him, not some random people that didn't come to church that day. He's talking to his people. And so this is a problem for us. Pride sets us up as judge. Judge is based upon pride. Thirdly, it's also based upon ignorance. And this is ignorance in the true meaning of the word. It's something we don't know. Things we don't understand. What am I ignorant of? Well, I'm ignorant of this command. Do not judge. I pretend maybe like it doesn't apply to me. I'm ignorant of that huge log sticking out of my face. I don't see it anymore. I'm ignorant of my inability to truly evaluate another person's motives or character or, or, or anything about them. Because I, I'm ignorant of the fact that I'm not God. And I'm also ignorant of, of, a person, of who a person truly is. I don't really know them. I'm ignorant of my own sinful motives in all of this stuff. I'm blind and I don't know it. Now, none of those are good, by the way. Impulse, pride ignorance. Those, those are not good things from, from which to operate. If I'm going to relate to other people, then, then impulse and pride and ignorance, not a good starting point, not a good foundation in my life. And because they aren't good, they lead to some not so good things. Two things that I see. Number one is damage. What do they, what do they result in? Damage. Damage to others. 
my words, my actions, my responses, my attitudes, that huge log sticking out of my face, guess what it does? It hits people, doesn't it? Every time I turn around, every time I try to help them with a little speck, I knock them down with all this stuff in my life that they understand disqualifies me. It's also damaging to myself. Jesus says, don't judge so that what? So that you won't be judged. Because guess what? It's coming back around. And this can be very practically applied. The people who are the most judgmental find the most judgment, don't they? The people who are the most argumentative, they find the most arguments, right? It's just the way it goes. Damage is done to others and to myself because of my role as judge. And then secondly, there's hypocrisy that results. Jesus said in verse 5, you hypocrite. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye. Then, then maybe, then maybe you'll be able to help somebody else. The truth is, my hypocrisy here is that I, I, cl- I claim that I care about the truth, but I don't care about people. You ever know somebody like that? They're going to tell you the truth. They don't care about you. Maybe you've worked for somebody like that. Maybe you've got somebody in your family. Maybe, maybe you've been married to somebody like that. They care about the truth. They're going to be right, but they don't care about you. And Jesus says, that's hypocrisy. Because guess what? That big log that's hitting people in the face is your lack of concern and compassion and genuine God-like love for them. You might be right, but you're going to cut off their ears before they have a chance to hear the message. What a shame. And so this person, this hypocrite, is unwilling to deal with their own sin, but more than happy to point it out in everybody else. They'll maximize everybody else's faults and minimize their own. So that's one role that I can play. Now the second role goes a little quicker, just so you know. The second role that I can play when I read this, the second role that I find is the role of brother. Now ladies, you can write in sister if you want to. That's totally fine. We're just talking about a sibling kind of relationship. Okay, Jesus uses the term brother. He says in verse 4, how can you say to your brother? So we got this other role. So you can write in sister if you want to. That's cool. All right. We're not, not trying to, you know, make you feel bad this morning. Okay. As a side note, as I've always told you, ladies, and I don't mean this as patronage, when Jesus mentions us as sons of God, when the Bible and the New Testament mentions everybody in God's family as sons, that is an elevation of women to a position they had never held before. It is an absolute validation on the fact that you stand as equals before the Lord. So that you are sons worthy of the inheritance that a son in that culture would have gotten that a daughter would not have gotten. So just understand that. Okay? It's right in sister if you want to. If it helps you, whatever. It's okay. Um, And so what we're talking about here is a sibling kind of role. I'm I'm putting myself in this, so I'm playing the role of brother. Uh, It's someone of an equal on the same level. Now, three things, of course, this is based on as well. The the antithesis of of what the role of judge is based on. First is patience instead of impulse. So I'm patient with people. I don't expect them to be perfect. I don't expect them to get it immediately. I don't expect them to become a Christian after one conversation with me, the great evangelist. I don't expect that. I don't even expect them to become mature Christians after, after just spending a little bit of time with me. And they're all of a sudden, they're going to get everything. I'm patient with them. So I don't make quick judgments. I don't make impulsive judgments. And I certainly don't make final judgments. That's up to God. So I'm patient. Just like 1 Corinthians talks about, love is patient. And I don't keep a record of all the things that they're doing wrong and so that I can nail them with it and judge them accordingly. And I'm actually interested in this person, not just in what they do. I care about them. And so I don't jump to these conclusions. I take time. I focus on the issues. I get to know the person and so on. I'm patient so that I can help them. Secondly, the role of brother is based on humility rather than pride. And Jesus says it. 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye. Be humble enough to admit, I've got issues too. Now, we can get carried away with this. Well, who am I to say anything to anybody? Listen, the church needs leaders. Let me just tell you this. Church needs teachers, needs leaders. It needs courageous people who will say, look, I am flawed and I am sinful and I understand that and I have confessed my sin to the Lord and he has forgiven me. And so, no, I'm not perfect, but I am willing to do what God has called me to do. Our church needs those kind of people. Because if nobody will step up and say, well, listen, I will lead and I will help, then we've got a bunch of people who are sitting around waiting on everybody else to do it, and we need spiritual leadership. So this is not about, well, I better not, I better not teach and I better not help with vacation Bible school and whatever, because if they knew about me, what, listen, confess your sin, move on. Let the Lord clean you up and move on. You can be stuck in the past all you want, never do anything for the Lord, never grow you and so on. Confess your sin, receive his forgiveness, and move on. And so this isn't what we're talking about with, with sort of this humility. Well, I better not say anything. This is exactly what I just described. I'm willing to confess my sin, recognize that I've got stuff in my life and this big log that sticks out of my face. I need to confess that, ask the Lord to do some surgery and remove that from my life, and then I can be in position to help other people. I don't know if you feel that way sometimes or not, but I sure do. People come to me needing spiritual help, and I just think, oh my goodness gracious. I got a huge log in my face right now. You may not see it, but I know it's there. What am I supposed to say to you? This little speck that you got in your eye. You don't even recognize it's small. And here I am, you know, I get, I get that. And so I have to, on a routine basis, ask the Lord for forgiveness and say, God, you know where I'm at. And you know this huge log sticking out of my face. Would you please take it away? Because I'm just going to hurt people. And I'm not qualified to help them spiritually. I get it. It's humility, though. I ask the Lord to search and remove the evil and the sinful attitudes and actions in my life. And and I judge myself first so that then I can be used. I pray against being critical and harsh and instead to be merciful and gentle and seeking righteousness just like the Beatitudes talk about. And then thirdly, the role of brother is also based on understanding instead of ignorance. I'm trying to understand what and who I'm tempted to judge. I seek first, as the old statement goes, I seek first to understand, then to be understood. And I recognize that the folks that I'm so tempted to judge, they're people just like me. They're human. And they're prone to sin. And maybe even they're they're people that don't know Jesus. Do you know my role is not the role of judge in their life? It's the role of evangelist and friend and brother to try to reach them. I can condemn them all day long. And listen, I'm real good at it. Because I know what they're doing wrong. But that's not what they need, is it? They don't need condemnation. They need to understand the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They need to understand, yes, their sin has condemned them, but I don't condemn them. But they stand under the condemnation of God if they don't place their faith in Jesus Christ. They need to know that. But they need to be loved. They need to understand. And so playing the role of brother results or sister results in many positive things couple of these that I see here. First of all is healing instead of, again, the antithesis of damage. You know, once that log is removed from my eye, if I go and I talk to Mark at that point, now I can, I can help him because I've confessed my sin. And listen, it's no longer about me trying to make him right. It's about me trying to help him. The, the Bible uses, and Jesus used a very specific term when he talks about the eye. Do you know, you know what the hardest place to touch on your face is? It's your eye, right? Touch all the way over here and stuff, no big deal. Somebody start trying to touch your eye, you're ready to fight them, aren't you? 
away from my face, man. What are you trying to do? Well, you got something in your eye. Well, hold on a second. Don't be reaching in there. You don't know what you're doing. You see the parallel Jesus is drawing. If you're going to do surgery on something as delicate as someone's eye, you better not have stuff in your way. And if you were going to do surgery, so to speak, on someone's soul and be used by God to help them grow spiritually, and Jesus says, you know what, confess your sin first, and then you can be used to bring healing. Secondly, this results in clarity instead of hypocrisy. Once the log is removed, once I've confessed my sin, I can now see clearly what exactly this person needs and what will help them most. Because now I don't have sinful attitudes and bias in the way. There's no sin, there's no impulse, there's no pride, there's no ignorance that's standing in my way. And now I can see clearly. And you know what else can be seen clearly? That person can see that I genuinely care about them. That I'm not just some religious Bible thumper just wanting to get everybody in line. Y'all need to find Jesus. So help me God, I'm going to help you find Jesus right now. You know what I'm saying? Now they see me as someone who loves them and says, you know what? I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'd love to find out. And I'd love to help you understand what God wants to do in your life by the power of Jesus Christ. And that's my attitude toward them. They can see clearly, I want to help you. So what do we do now in closing? What do we do? The final verses here. Jesus says in verse 7, keep asking, keep searching, keep knocking. Guess what? You'll find, you'll receive, it'll be open to you. And then he talks about the kind of parent that God is. He says, if, 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 if you, he calls us being evil, that, that's essentially human. If you, who are human, know how to give good things to your children, then how much more does God understand what we need? And then he says in verse 12, what you want others to do for you, do, do also the same for them. That's the law and the prophets. Let me encourage you this week, this week, to do for others what God has done for you. What has he done? He's treated you like one of his own. He has said, if you keep asking then you'll receive. He's that kind of father. He loves you. He gives. He also reveals. Keep searching, you'll find. He opens doors. Keep knocking, you'll be open. He knows what you need, talking about how the good gifts he gives us. And he loves us. In verse 11 it says, that's the kind of relationship that God has with us. If you look at that, if you study, what has God done for me? Then I'm going to turn that around. And like the golden rule says, I'll do for others what I want them to do for me. What do I want done for me? What God has done for me. And that's why I put it in those terms. Do you realize what God has done for you? Folks, I, I don't know if you've been in church a long time. How, how would it have gone differently for you? I don't mean circumstances, how they would have changed. The circumstances aren't going to change, are they? They're going to be what they are. It is what it is, we like to say. But how would this week have been different if you had said in every circumstance, no matter what is happening... I'm going to leave it in God's hands. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do what I believe God wants me to do. And that's it. I'm simply going to know His Word. I'm, I'm going to pray His Word. I'm going to obey His Word. I, I, I'm going to leave it in His hands. I wonder. I wonder how, how things would have, would have been different. I know my week would have been different. I know, again, I joke with you, but some of you are. You're just much more spiritual than I am. You just leave everything in God's hands. It doesn't matter. No big deal. But I, I struggle with that sometimes. I was presented with a variety of opportunities this week to worry about a lot of stuff. You the same way? You know what I'm talking about? 
A variety of opportunities. A smorgasbord, if you will. A buffet full of worry opportunities. I had all kinds of chances to worry about stuff this week. Which also presented me, of course, all kinds of chances to leave things in God's hands. I wish I could stand before you and say, well, I tell you what, class with flying colors this week is great. But since I'm preaching on worry this morning, I've got to be honest with you, I worried about a few things this week. There's some things that kind of got to me that I wasn't totally leaving in God's hands. Now, I want to pass around this morning a couple of things. I'm going to start one on this side over here with Michael. And I'll start one on the other side over here. I can't let you start this one. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to study these two papers. Okay, one's going to go around on this side, and it just gets to the back. Y'all just hang on to it when it gets to the back. I'll collect it in a minute. Okay, study it. I'm serious. I want you to look at it. I want you to front and back. I want you to read everything that's written on there, even the fine print. I want you to check that out and, and, and pass it around. We'll get back to that in just a minute. So as I'm talking this morning, you pass that around, study it very intently, and it should get to the back, hopefully just a little bit later. Now, if you were to have left things in God's hands this week, what would it have been? You had lots of things that were worries and stressors this particular week. The, the things that we worry about most, at least what studies will tell us, and I think anecdotally what we would say if I were to poll the audience this morning, we would probably say these are the things that we worry about most. The number one thing that studies will tell us, at least that people will say on a survey, is the thing that, that they worry about most, number one is what? Does anybody want to take a guess? What's the number one thing you worry about? Money. Money, money, money. That's the first thing. Secondly, for some, maybe health or something like that. But finances, the number one thing. How am I going to make it to the end of the month? Is there going to be any money left over at the end of the month? There's going to be a lot of month left over at the end of the month. You know what I'm saying? So that's what they, they worry about, money. Another thing we worry about are relationships, the breakdown of relationships. Some of you have gone through that, whether it's a marriage, a family thing, a, a child relationship, a relationship with a friend, whomever, you've gone through the breakdown of that. And others are worried about, okay, how, how you know, am I ever going to find the, the right person? Am I, you know, am I ever going to have the right relationships and so on, whether it's a marriage relationship or friends or whatever? We also worry about work. Many people here today are probably worried about losing your job. Maybe, maybe things aren't great with the company anymore, and they're cutting back. Or maybe you know, your, your last job performance rating just wasn't strong, and you're, you're a little worried about losing your job. Maybe you've been through that before. Many of us, as Kathy sang about in the song, we worry about our futures. You know, what if? And, and, and I wonder what's going to happen. And, and oh, you know, I, I don't know what to expect. And certainly, as I mentioned, many people worry about their health. You know, right now, as you sit here, there are a million different things go wrong with your body. A million things inside your body can start misfiring and go wrong. This is the way it is, isn't it? And, and, and we worry about what's going on. Now, from what I gather, both from experience and from talking to people, our worries tend to increase as we get older. You know, when you're a kid, you got no cares in the world, right? You ever, you ever wish you could go back to, to where you have no responsibility and no worries? You know, you're just, you're just playing outside and having a big time and whatever you want to do. Well, when you get older, you have responsibilities and now you're aware of all the things that you should have always been worried about all along. Now you're aware of those things. But many of us today, I think we arrive and we really are, we're worried to death. Uh, that's just unfortunately part of the human experience for so many. We're, we're carrying around that, that uneasy feeling about that particular situation, that person, or or that problem that you are or one day you think you might be facing. 
Ultimately, I think it boils down to one particular question for all of us. You'll see it there in your outline. The one question I think that we come down to when, when we're worried about stuff, we're worried of death, the one question in our minds really can be summed up, I think, in so many ways, how will I be taken care of? How will I be taken care of? That, that's, that's ultimately the core, I think, of our worry. What's going to happen? How will this affect me? What will I lose? And so on and so forth. And of course, with money at the top of the list, how will I be taken care of? Now, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we... we led into this passage we'll be looking at this morning in the Scripture. At the top of the list of all of our worries is money. Jesus talked about it, and I think He alluded to it. He was leading into it, of course, when He said, you can't serve both God and money. And then He gets to verse 25, and we'll pick that up in a few minutes. Money, of course, is not the only thing we worry about. You say, I ain't worried about money. I ain't got that anyway. No big deal. Why can I worry about something I don't have? But, maybe you've got some other kind of worry. Some people, I read this week, it was described, some people are always in mayday mode. Always just going down. Everything's just terrible. It's mayday, mayday, mayday. Always, all the time. Just always worried. Some people are worried about the past. Well, I could have done this. I should have done that. If I had done that or this or whatever, things would be different today. I'm worried about what I did back then and so on and so forth. Mistakes I made and whatever. Some people, of course, are worried about the future. I don't know what's going to happen. And some this morning are caught in that cycle that repeats every single day. You are a professional worker. That's what you do for a living, it seems. You work all the time. And so this morning, what are we going to do about it? It's something we all deal with. It's something everybody faces. What will we do about it? And does the Bible have anything to say about it? Has God just left us in our worry to say, well, good luck, guys? Or has He said something about it? And He has, of course, indeed said something about it very clearly. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, you got a Bible handy, won't you turn there? Matthew chapter 6. Paper still going around? Good. Okay, then just hold on to them when we get to the back there. Do a quiz later. There will be a quiz. Just so you study. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 is where we're going to pick up today. Now, this, as I said, is connected to the previous verses that we looked at a couple weeks ago in a series called Thy Kingdom Come. Talking about how God's kingdom, His rule, will take over every part of our lives and let it be great. It's connected to the previous verses. Jesus has said, verse 24, No one can, can be a slave and serve two masters, since you'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. So he's, he's leaning into what he already knew most people were going to be worried about. It's just one category, but he certainly understands this is probably something we're going to worry about. And so, as a result of what can cause us this anxiety, this worry... Here's what he says at the beginning of verse 25. He says, verse 24, you can't be slaves of God and money. Therefore, he says, this is why I tell you, verse 25, don't worry. Just stop there. Don't worry. Jesus is speaking to the people who are in the kingdom of God, those who have received his salvation, those who claim faith in him, and he says very clearly to the people in God's kingdom, don't worry. This is one of those verses I wish weren't about. Let's be honest. It would be a whole lot easier if I didn't have to deal with this one. Because I like to worry. You, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Not yet. You know? I mean, you say to Jesus, says, don't worry. Say, but, but hold on, Jesus, look. I mean, look at all that's happening. I mean, there's a lot to worry about. I mean, you know, look what I'm dealing with here. I mean, you know, Jesus, if you were dealing with this, you can worry too, right? I mean, you know, or, or, or look at what might or might not happen. I mean, there's a lot to worry about. What about this, and what if that, and so on? You know, the truth is, worry comes so very naturally to us. And it just, it just comes naturally. 
We are naturally fearful. It's just a normal part of life for so many of us. You would say, Jesus says, don't worry, but well, but somebody's got to worry about this. You know what? All these other, they don't care about anything. Somebody needs to worry about this. I got some relatives like that. They're going to take up their worry and everybody else's worry. Why? Because somebody needs to worry about it. Somebody needs to sit here and be worried about this. That's what they do. You know, and maybe you say, well, you know, don't worry, okay. But but if I don't, if I'm not worried, then I don't look like I care. I need to be really worried and have this stern look on my face and, 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 and really worry about this because then everybody will know that I really care if I'm worried. But he says, don't worry. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, hey, no, that's probably not working real well for you, so maybe you shouldn't do that. It's imperative, a command. Very clearly, and it's continual. Don't worry and keep on, don't worry. That's, that's the idea. Don't worry now, don't worry later. Don't worry tomorrow, don't worry the next day. That's the idea, don't worry. There is not a situation that we can find a loophole in his teaching about don't worry. We won't find it. Now, the great thing about Jesus and the way he taught, he didn't just give us some commands and say, well, don't worry. Why? Because it's okay. That's not what he does. He gives us the reasons, and then he gives us an alternative. Here's what you should be doing instead. Here's how to overcome those things. And so that's what we get in the rest of Matthew 6, 25 to 34. I'm going to give you this morning five reasons Jesus lays out why we shouldn't worry, why we don't need to worry, why worry isn't going to help us anyway. And then we're going to get to sort of a general conclusion, and then here's what we can do this week when we're tempted, when we are given all those opportunities to work. Five things, five reasons why Jesus is telling us that we don't need to worry. Number one, God can be trusted. Look at verse 25. I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing. I mean, the, the question that we, that we come down to this morning is, can we trust God with the things that we worry about? Or are we on our own? We need to deal with these things on our own. We worry about, how am I going to be taken care of? And we forget, Jesus is alluding to, we forget who gave us life in the first place. What he's saying is, don't worry about your life. And then he says, don't worry about the things that sustain life. Food, drink, clothing, those kind of things that help you stay alive. And, and, and so what he's saying is, Essentially, don't you think that life is a little bit more than all those things? He's making a really good point. If you study this a little bit, he's making a really, really good point. What he's saying is, the life that you have that you're so worried about, where did it come from? Where'd you get it? Did you create yourself? Did you choose to be in existence? No, it came from God himself, right? That's what the Bible teaches us. We know that, that, that none of us created ourselves. We were created by someone else. His name is God. And Jesus says, if he's the one who gave you life, you don't have to worry about life because it came from him. And guess what you don't have to worry about either? The stuff that sustains life. Why? Because God's going to take care of those things too. Is not life the biggest thing? And if God can be trusted with the biggest thing to create life, can he not also be trusted with the stuff of life? That's what Jesus is saying. It's the point that he's making. It's a rhetorical question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It is. Well, then if God can be trusted with the big thing of life, of giving you life, can he not be trusted with the stuff of your life? That's what Jesus said. Now, it's rhetorical. The answer is obviously, well, yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's right. That's what he's saying, though. God can be trusted. If he can be trusted with the big things, he can be trusted with the small things. 
lives. And isn't it interesting how so many of the things we worry about, if we were honest, are not just the big things. It's all the little things. And that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? That's where daily life is. Not just in the big things. Oh, that's important. No question. But it's in the little things. How am I going to be taken care of in this? How am I going to be taken care of in that? What's going to happen here? And Jesus is just saying, hold on, stop. God can be trusted with this big thing called life. Can he not be trusted with what you do every day? Can he not be trusted with sustaining who you are and providing for you? That's the question he's asking. So the first thing, first reason that worry is something Jesus says, don't do that, is because, number one, God can be trusted. Number two, you are valuable to God. You are valuable to God. Now, he, he, he gives some really interesting teaching on this. He tells us here, verse 26, look at the birds of the sky. Now, birds are both incredible and really stupid all at the same time. They're really, really incredible and really dumb. That's just birds. Jesus says, pay attention to them. Look at them. You realize that birds can navigate their way south and then back north by means that scientists still can't understand? I mean, they really, they, they can speculate, but they really don't know how the birds do that. And yet, thousands of them die every year flying in the windows they didn't know were there. <laughs> I mean, seriously. They're incredible and dumb all at the same time. I mean, they're, you know, that's just birds. Jesus says, pay attention to them. Notice them. Study them. He says, here's what they don't do. Look at it. Verse 26. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns. So they're not planting seeds. They're not harvesting any crops. And they're not storing anything in a grain bin. None of them. Not doing anything that typical farmers would do to make sure that you got all the stuff at the end of the season that you, you know, that you should have by that time. They are not doing any of those things. And yet, look what it says. Your heavenly Father feeds them. They're incredible. And dumb. And a dime a dozen. Even so, your heavenly Father feeds them. God's relationship to the birds of the sky is that of creator and provider and sustainer. Jesus makes the point, <clears throat> subtle but important, he makes the point that our relationship to God is different from other birds. What does he say? He doesn't say their Heavenly Father. Who does he say? Your Heavenly Father. Subtle difference, but very important. Now that changes the game. He's not their Father, but he sustains them anyway. And he gives them what they need to find food. He's our Father, which is why Jesus asked the rhetorical question at the end of verse 26, are you not worth more than they are? We have, we have two cats in our house. The kids love them. And, and, I, and I put up a tongue here. They catch a few mice every once in a while. They like to bring them outside. You know what I'm talking about. The kids love my tongue and, and sometimes at home, it's just me and the cats. And I'm not tempted to worry at that point. I'm tempted to, you know, to do other things. But um, <laughs> it's just me and the cats sometimes. And... and and they start whining about what they want. They want to go outside. They want to come inside. They want food. They want some milk. And so it's just me and them. And so you know what I do? I give them some food and some milk. I let them outside and inside and outside and inside and outside and inside. <laughs> and then I shut the door and tell them we're not going anywhere else. But that's what I do for these stupid cats. Now, if, if that's what I will do, if that's what I will do for those cats that just happen to be in our possession. 
If that's what I will do for cats, what more, infinitely more, would I do for my own children? Do you see the point that Jesus made? Their, their value, my children, their value is obviously more to me beyond that of those stupid cats. There's no question. Our relationship, mine with my children, it's fundamentally different. They are mine. They're my children. And even if I really did care about those cats a lot, they still aren't my kids, right? They are human, and I won't and I can't love them the same way. And no one in their right mind would value a pet over their own child. Nobody in their right mind. Nobody, no, nobody who's thinking straight would do that. And that's really what Jesus is saying. We are fundamentally different from the birds. And that's why naturalistic kind of thinking, honestly, is just illogical. I mean, we, we all, I don't care if you're a church person, a God person, a Jesus person, or if you're an atheist, everybody knows. Everybody knows that humans have intrinsically more value than anything else. Look at the laws of our land. Look at the laws. Now, you can get in trouble for cruelty to animals. You can. But, is there a death penalty for that? Is there life imprisonment without parole upon life imprisonment without parole upon life sentence after life sentence for that? No. Why? Because humans matter more. We all know that. You don't even have to be a, you don't have to be a Bible person. You just know. It's just built into us. part of the image of God, by the way. It's a hint toward God, just so you know. We are infinitely more valuable. And, and also, we have a fundamentally different relationship with God than is possible for any other part of His creation. Because only humans are created in God's image. Only humans can relate to Him as Father. Only humans can become children of God. Only humans are the height of God's creation. Only humans can experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Only humans are the ones that Jesus died for. And so we're fundamentally different. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's telling us not to worry, reminding us how valuable we are to God. If God cares about birds who crash into windows and kill themselves, then certainly God cares about the height of His creation human beings. That's what Jesus is saying. That doesn't mean, of course, that we can just sit around because God's going to provide for us because He provides for the birds. We need to sit around and wait for provision to fall from the sky and do nothing. It's not what Jesus is saying. It doesn't exempt us from working if we're able. It, it doesn't exempt us from helping other people when we can. It doesn't exempt us from, uh, from experiencing even trouble. Sometimes trouble's going to happen. So just because God is going to provide doesn't mean we're not going to have any problems. But it does mean... That the God who is the God that we can call Father has promised that He gave us life and He will be in charge and in control of our lives until the end. And then, if we are His children by faith in Jesus Christ, He'll take us on to be with Him forever. So don't worry, He says, you're so much more valuable than you can imagine. Then He goes on to reinforce that point, And He says in verse 28, He says, and why do you worry about clothes? Anybody worry about clothes? Some of you gave up a long time ago, didn't you? I'm with you. That's where the same stuff over. Sometimes I go two or three weeks in a row on Sunday morning, and I think, I kind of wore that last week and the week before. I don't care. I gave up a long time ago. Some of you, though, you're so worried about it. You've got to look a certain way. you got to dress a certain way. Your closet is full of stuff, and you got a thing to wear. You know what I'm saying? Fellas, I mean, you, know, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? There's nothing to wear on. Ladies, certainly don't deal with that. Anyway, Jesus says, why do you worry about clothes? And he says, learn how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. Wildflowers out in the field, he says, look out, pay attention. The stuff that just grows when the crops aren't in there, just pay attention. They aren't working hard, they ain't wearing themselves out. That's what we do. They're not doing that, they just grow beautifully. You know why? Because God causes them to germinate, He gives them water, and He gives them sun. They just grow. This is what they do. 
They just grow. And they're incredible, so complex. So many different intricacies of flowers, even the ones that just grow wild out in the fields. And Jesus says, even Solomon, the guy that they would have all thought was the richest, wisest, most incredible, impressive guy that they had ever seen in Jewish history. Not even Solomon compares to the incredible detail, the incredible nature of those flowers. And he says, if that's how, in verse 30, God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and thrown into the furnace tomorrow. By the way, back then, what they would do is they would cut down those flowers and so on, and they'd toss them in their ovens as fuel. They would burn them as cheap sources of fuel to make their bread or whatever. Jesus says, if that's what happens, the grass is here one day, the flowers are there one day, and the next day, somebody just cuts them down and burns them to make some bread. If that's how God takes care of them, won't he do much more for you? Another rhetorical question. My answer is, oh, yeah, I guess. The grass and the flowers here one day, the next day cut down. God cares for them, takes care of them, causes them to grow. Won't God take care of you? You are so much more valuable, Jesus than you've ever realized. So much more valuable to God. Then he goes to number three. Number three, worry is unproductive. So not only can God be trusted, not only are we valuable to Him, but worry, practically speaking, is unproductive. Look at verse 27. He says, Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? Some will say, Can add an hour to his life? And there's some confusion over which is this talking about can you make yourself taller? Can you add length to your life? The point is, he's talking about life in the body. Can you do anything whatsoever to add to your height or to add to your life? Where, where are those papers? We got them in the back. I need those papers. Thank you. I'm going back in again. I'm sure you found everything that, that was on there. You were worried that I wouldn't come get it. That's great. Okay, Rocky's got the other one. Okay. <clears throat> Sure. Now, I, I, you should have studied these really, really well by now. And uh, nobody added to it. That's good. <laughs> I, don't any, I don't have any notes here. What you what you studied, just so you know, front and back of both of these, front and back of both is all that you can change by worrying. Here it is, right here. It's all, it's everything that you can change, everything you can impact, all the stuff you can really make happen if you sit around and you worry all the time. They're blank, totally blank, by the way. Some of you are like, they write invisible ink. What's going on? They're black, like, you know. Some of you, there's nothing on there. You know why? Because guess what? Jesus said in verse 27, can you do anything by worrying? I got stuff at five feet, eight inches tall. Stuck. I say, I want to be taller. Man, I worry about it for a while. My dad, when I was about 12 years old, he said, you know, I was about 15, I had a growth spurt. Okay. I got to 15, I was still the same height. He said, you know, when I was about 18, I think I really had a growth spurt. <laughs> I got to 18. He said, you know, when I was about 21. I said, Dad, just stop. Man. Just stop. It's okay. No, it's all, it's all good. I worried for a long time about being tall enough. You know, I wanted to play baseball and so on. Worried about those things. Some of you are worried about other things like that. You're worried that my life won't last as long as I want, so on and so forth. This is all the stuff right here. All the stuff you can change by worrying. Nothing. Jesus said, can you do anything? It's another rhetorical question. If I, were to, if I were to ask you, could you please write on the paper everything? Let's just pass it around. 
everything you can change by worrying, you'd probably have to get to the end of it and say, well, I can't think of anything that I can literally change by worrying. It's unproductive. Now, you can, I suppose, alter a few things because it's so unproductive. You can give yourself ulcers. That's always fun. Uh, you, you, can, you can make yourself sleep a whole lot less. Do you realize that the worrying times for most people somewhere between 9 in the evening and 3 in the morning? You know what you're supposed to be doing during those times? Sleeping. You know, what you, you know how you feel the next morning if you stay up worrying all night long about something? Awful. It's terrible. You, you I suppose you can. You can say, well, I can change my health. I can make it worse. Uh, you know, you, you think about all those things. That you can't change. And yet, what do we do? We worry about it all the time, don't we? I got my list of stuff that I'm worried about. Can I do anything about it? No, but I'm worried about it anyway. Jesus just says rhetorically, can you, I mean, you know, he's not even being a smart one. He's just trying to call us out and say, is there anything you're accomplishing? Why on earth are you doing it? That's what he's telling us. Now, those are at greater risk, maybe of some problems with worrying and so on. If you've got a real stressful lifestyle or job, if you're a perfectionist, uh, not that I know anything about that, right? Uh, none of us would. Believing, maybe, maybe you believe that worry actually does accomplish something. Uh, maybe you feel responsible for everything that happens, especially the bad things. It was your fault. Everything. Uh, maybe you're the worst case scenario person. You always catastrophize everything. Everything, you just immediately go worst case scenario. Now, you're a real good troubleshooter, but you worry yourself to death. Or maybe you have, a, you know, you're just kind of isolated in life, and you just sit and brood over these things. Here, here are some things that, that we learn. Worry affects your body in these ways. It messes with your concentration. You can't think straight. It suppresses your immune system. You get sick more. It will make you sick to your stomach. Literally, you say, I'm in a knot. Absolutely. You have muscle tension. Maybe you've noticed that. It gives you a headache. You have short-term memory loss when you're really, really worried. You can't, can't remember stuff that you should be remembering. You, your appetite changes. Either you eat too much or not enough. You, your sleep patterns change. You want to sleep none or you want to sleep all the time. You have relationship issues. Nobody likes to be around somebody who's just constantly worried and talking about what they're worried about all the time. You ever notice that? You know what I'm talking about? None of you. That, that kind of person you wouldn't. You wouldn't. See? Your job performance changes. It also can cause premature coronary artery disease and heart attack. It's a lovely list of stuff, isn't it? Hey, let's worry. That's what we should be doing. Worry not only affects you physically, of course, but also affects you spiritually. It cripples your faith. We're going to get to that in a minute. Worry smothers your faith. It smothers it. It also makes it impossible for you to hear from God. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13. He talks about the worries of the world choking out the voice of the Word of God. And certainly our emotions have a direct effect on us spiritually. So, so in all areas of life, no matter what it is, worry is unproductive and unhealthy. Number four, you are to be different. Another reason not to worry, you are to be different. Verse 31, look at it. So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Here's Jesus saying, you're going to be different. You are people of God. You are children of the living God. So don't run around scared, talking about what are we going to eat, what are we going to wear, what are we going to drink, talking about what preoccupied with all that worries you so much. And He says in verse 32, the idolaters, those people don't even know God. 
That's what they're worried about. That's what their lives are set on. Constantly making sure they've got enough possessions and enough status. That's what they're worried about. And Jesus says, those are the idolaters. That's the people he holds up as opposite of what the children of God should be. They seek those things. They eagerly go after them. That's what their lives are set on. He says, let them do that. Let them run after those things. But you are to be different. And he says really the underlying problem in all of it. In verse 30. The very end of verse 30, I skipped over it for a reason. He makes a point about the grass and he says, won't he do much more for you? And what does it say? Anybody, anybody got it? You of what? A little faith. And, that, and that's really the point, isn't it? We are to be different. We are to have faith. We are to have great faith in a great God, and yet we have often little faith. Jesus is making the point to them that they had faith to receive salvation, but it's not. Not faith to walk with Jesus. Not faith to live with Him. Not faith to trust Him. And for many of us here today, if we're honest with ourselves, that's our problem. We're people of little faith. Yes, we, we, we believe Jesus for salvation. Yes, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I need Jesus to save me. Yes, I admit those things. There, there's where my faith sometimes stops. Though, right? I'm worried to death about everything else because I don't believe Him past that. But we've, we've often confined our faith to one little area of life. And that's it. It's not an all-consuming, all-surrendering faith. And so, in our daily lives, we're defeated. And we're defeated. Because we believe Jesus for salvation, but we don't believe Him. Make sense? We don't believe Him past We don't believe what He said. That God would give us rest. That God would take care of us. And so, as a result, we flounder in our faith. And when we're faced over and over and over, a million different ways, with how am I going to take care of myself? How will I be taken care of? We don't really answer the question. But the answer to the question, according to what Jesus tells, according to what the Scripture says, the answer to the question, over and over, in a million different ways, a million different times, how will I be taken care of? The answer is, I don't know, but I trust God. I don't know, but I'm trusting in Jesus who loved me and gave Himself for me, as Paul said in Galatians 2. I don't know how He will take care of me, but I trust that He will. That's faith. If you've got to have all the answers, there's no faith. If you, if you don't trust God without all the answers, then there's, there's no faith. And he goes on, of course, in verse 33, and he says, Instead of worrying, seek first God's kingdom, His rule, and His righteousness. That's His holiness in every area of life. Those are the things that we focus on. So we are to be different. A different faith. And then Jesus kind of closes things out and tells us finally, number five here, that worry is a thief. Verse 34 puts it very clearly. Jesus says it this way, Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Or tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Each day, he says, has enough trouble. There it is, on its own. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. The what ifs. The worst case scenario. Well, how will I be taken care of then? Tomorrow is going to have its own set of worries. Guess what? You can get up tomorrow, and something's going to be there that you didn't anticipate. Wait a minute. Can you tell me exactly what's going to happen tomorrow? Exactly. You, you pull out your phone and say, okay, I got this, I get this, I get this. No, I mean, really, can you tell me what's going to happen tomorrow? No. Can I explain to you everything that's going to happen tomorrow? I have no idea. Tomorrow's going to have its own set of things. 
But how many of us are worried about this week already? And you know what it's doing? Jesus says, it's a thief. Don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because it's stealing today. It's stealing our joy today. It's stealing our peace today. It's stealing our attention today. Our ability to live well today. It's stealing our energy. It's stealing our priorities. Worry is stealing our life one day at a time. And so he says, don't worry. The conclusion, really, of all that Jesus is teaching is very simple. It's very clear. You'll see little arrows kind of pointing to it there on your mind. But you can't worry and trust God at the same time. Can't do it. Those things are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. They cannot. Because you are either doing one or the other. You're either trusting God or you're worrying, but you can't do both at the same time. Cannot do it. Today, you can worry or you can trust God. Tomorrow, you will be worried or you will be trusting God. And so, this week, you'll see it down there in parentheses. As the song has already spoken so clearly to you, this week, let me encourage you to leave it in His hands. I mean, honestly, what if you did that? Not just rhetorically, but what really, what, what if you did that? What if you believed Jesus this week? What if you trusted Him? What, what if, whatever worries that you face, you, you, you took those and you left them in His hands? That doesn't mean you're oblivious to life. That doesn't mean you don't care. That doesn't mean you don't make provision for the future. It just means... What if I didn't worry? What if I didn't consume myself with these? What if I trusted God instead? What if I, what if I sought to know His Word, to pray His Word, to obey His Word instead of worrying? So, so what is the it that you need to leave in His hands? Leave it. What, what's it? This morning, let me encourage you. If you have never left your life in His hands, then that's where you need to start. The Bible tells us very clearly that all of us are sinners. All are an offense to God about who we are and what we do. And we need to be changed by Jesus. And that God provided the way for us to be forgiven and changed. And that is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Leaving your life in His hands begins by admitting that you're a sinner, repenting of that sin, and believing in faith that Jesus died for you and giving your life to Him. And as I said earlier, many of us have already done that. So there's another it that we need to leave in His hands. What is it? You got your little connect card. In just a moment, Nelson's going to come and, and, and close us out with a song. He's going to sing the first three verses. Then we're going to stand and join him on the last couple. And during the time when he's singing those first three verses, here, here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you to take a little connect card. Maybe you got enough, maybe you don't. And just write on there, what is it that I need to leave in God's hands? Maybe the whole bunch of it's. Maybe you need one of these papers. I don't know. I'll give you one. What is it that you need to leave in God's hands? And maybe... You take that with you, and this week you pray about it. You say, Lord, I'm leaving this, this it in your hands. Or maybe you want to give it to me and say, would you please pray for me? This is what I'm leaving in God's hands. As I walk out this door, this is what I'm leaving. And I'll pray for you this week. You'll put your number on there, email address. I'll contact you and just say, look, I want you to know I'm praying for you. How's it going? However you want to do that. But I wonder what problems are you causing yourself because you won't leave it in God's hands. What would be different if you left it in God's hands? He can be trusted. You are valuable to Him. Leave it in His hands. Nelson, won't you come and lead us? He's going to sing a song called I, I Need Thee Every Hour. And this week, that's exactly what we're going to need. Is Jesus every single hour. And so He's going to sing the first three verses and then 
I'll, I'll stand up and you all can stand with him. We'll join him as we sing those last couples. Our prayer. You take time to fill out that connect card and then join us as we sing. Please. Thank you. 